0: This summer was a record breaker in many parts of the world. It was hot. People that normally have nice temperate summers sweated their butts off. And I felt for them. Living in Florida, I know how hot summers can get. Now the heat wave is broken and it is officially fall. We should be looking forward to enjoying the cool weather. But here in Florida, we are in the midst of what for most Floridians will be the hottest part of the year. It's hurricane season. And what that means here in Florida is that large parts of the state are likely to be without electricity for extended periods of time. And that means that the air conditioner will not be working. Trust me when I say there is no heat quite like post-hurricane heat. But the temperature is in the 80s or 90s and the humidity feels like it's 150% and there is no air conditioning, no electric fans, very little breeze, and nothing to distract you from the sweating and bugs but the effort of cleaning up after the hurricane. To top all of that off, most of the homes in Florida were built assuming that air conditioning would be available. So, they tend to heat up and build up moisture fast when the air conditioning is no longer available. After every hurricane, while I am laying on my stripped down bed wearing as few clothes as possible and sweating at midnight unable to sleep, I think, how did people deal with this kind of heat before there was air conditioning? On this episode of Hang Your Hat, we will explore ancient air conditioning methods, some of which are still used today and see how I and my fellow Floridians can beat the heat the next time a hurricane strikes. Throughout history, one of the best ways to beat the heat has been to catch a breeze, and houses were often built with that in mind. No place was that more true than in the Middle East, which can get blisteringly hot in the midday summer sun. Many areas in the Middle East are regularly among the hottest places in the world so it is no wonder they came up with an excellent way to cool off as far back as ancient Egypt. What they came up with is called a wind catcher. The most basic wind catcher is a tall tower that is capped at the top, but has one or more openings on the side of the tower. The open sides face the prevailing wind and catch the wind as it blows toward the tower. The wind is then brought down the tower into the home below, cooling the building's interior. In this case, the wind catcher doesn't cool the air, but the fast-moving air does provide a cooling effect, just like a fan. But wind catchers can get much fancier than that. Some wind catchers are used in combination with underground canals or reservoirs, which stay very cool underground. In this case, the wind catcher sits over the underground water source, and the opening in the wind catcher faces away from the wind. On the windy side of the wind catcher, a tunnel is dug down to the underground water source. As the wind blows, some wind blows over the wind catcher, creating an area of low pressure behind the wind catcher, and some wind blows down the tunnel. The wind that blows down into the tunnel then rushes over the water, cooling the wind. The cooled wind is then sucked up through the house up into the wind catcher, by the area of low pressure formed behind the wind catcher's opening. This method uses evaporative cooling to literally reduce the temperature of the air that is pushed through the house, not unlike the evaporative coolers known as swamp coolers that are used in the American Southwest today. Evaporative cooling has the additional benefit in dry climates of moistening the air that is present in the home, making it more comfortable for the home's occupants. Evaporative cooling is much less effective in areas where there is already high humidity, however, like here in Florida. Wind catchers work even when there is no wind to catch or water to evaporate. In this type of environment, it works like a solar chimney. Since hot air is less dense than cooler air, it likes to rise, and the opening at the top of the wind catcher allows the hot air to escape from the house. This method of cooling is helped along by the large diurnal temperature variant that is often present in the desert climates that wind catchers are popular in. At night, the temperatures drop significantly, and some of that cool air is trapped inside the house, staying low in the house, while the less dense warmer air escapes. However, when a wind catcher is used in this way, it can't cool the home to temperatures lower than the nightly temperature. While it may seem like modern air conditioners are the obvious choice over wind catchers, the wind catchers' ease of maintenance and energy efficiency mean that they have been gaining in popularity in recent years, even here in the Western world. The Visitor Center in Zion National Park in Utah currently utilizes a wind catcher to cool down its guests. Passive cooling technology is not new to the American Southwest, however. One of the world's oldest passive cooling techniques was used by the native Anasazi tribe of modern-day Arizona and New Mexico over 2,000 years ago. Like many ancient people, the Anasazi noticed that it was a lot cooler underground or in caves and used that fact to their advantage. They built their homes in cubbies on cliff faces that would help regulate the temperature of their homes. But you should not imagine a hovel dug out at the side of a mountain. Their architecture was quite advanced and their structures were large and elaborate. Picture a huge overhanging cliff jutting out into the air. Under the cliff, in its shadow, is a mini tiered city. The buildings made of sandstone and positioned close together, windows facing out, looking onto what may have been plazas and large wells. The earth itself is wonderful at absorbing heat slowly and releasing it slowly over time, making homes that are built into the earth good at both heating and cooling. Over the course of a day, the rock and soil is warmed only slowly by the rays of the sun, keeping the surrounding environment cooler than it would be otherwise. Then, over the course of the night, the temperature drops and the earth releases its heat slowly, warming the area around it slightly. This form of passive cooling works best in areas where there is a large temperature gradient between night and day, like the deserts of the southwest U.S. India, which is also incredibly hot much of the year, developed two major passive cooling techniques, the stepwell and the jolly. A step well is basically what it sounds like. It's a well-like structure housing water with steps wrapping around the outside of it down to the edge of the water. Structures like homes or workplaces were built on top of or around the mouth of the stepwell. These structures were cooled when the water in the stepwell evaporated, again, using evaporative cooling to drop the temperature of the structures adjacent to the stepwell. A jolly, on the other hand, is a perforated structure that surrounds the outside of a building, like a second skin. It is fitted a few feet outside the building creating a layer of air and air circulation between the Jolly and the building. Jolly lets the filtered light into the building while still providing a great deal of shade and privacy. While a Jolly does not reduce the temperature of the structure it surrounds, it does help keep the temperature consistent by insulating the building from the worst of the sun's harsh rays, so the building does not heat up as easily as it would otherwise. Using these techniques A very modern Pearl Academy of Fashion in northwest India stays 20 degrees cooler inside the building than outside. It is also more comfortable inside, cheaper to build, and has lower running costs than similar buildings that do not use passive cooling techniques. Ancient peoples didn't rely exclusively on passive cooling techniques, however. The ancient Chinese invented an active cooling system that is still widely used throughout the world today, the fan. Around 180 AD, during the Han Dynasty, a Chinese inventor named Ding Huan created the first rotary fan. It was the great-great-grandfather of today's modern ceiling fans. Prior to his invention, fans had pretty much been hand fans or flapping bits of material like carpets or palm fronds. Huan's fan consisted of seven wheels that were each 10 feet wide and were completely human-powered. About 500 years later, Emperor Zhuanzong, also of China, improved on Huan's design. He created a water-powered fan that included fountains, upping the evaporative cooling power of the fan. My favorite ancient cooling method is one that we actually already touched on in episode 25, The Smallest Room. As we learned in that episode, ancient Greece had a really impressive aqueduct system that transported fresh water throughout the cities, and some of that water was piped directly into the homes of wealthier citizens. What we did not talk about then Was how that water cooled the houses of those wealthier citizens. The pipes in Greek homes were not just a method for moving water from one place to another. The water was purposely piped through the walls of Greek homes so that it would cool the bricks surrounding the pipes. As the bricks cooled, the temperature in the home also dropped. The methods that ancient peoples used to cool their homes were ingenious, and they still are. Incorporating these techniques into modern buildings could make them more comfortable while using less energy. However, most of these techniques are best suited to arid climates. What about people like me who live in hot and humid climates? How can we cool our homes without modern air conditioning? In areas where it is hot and humid, passive cooling techniques focus on two principles, minimizing heat gain and maximizing heat loss. To minimize heat gain, you have to keep external heat in the form of solar radiation out of the house to the maximum extent possible. One way to do this is by providing a lot of shade so that little direct solar radiation actually hits the home. Here in the South, trees have been the shade option of choice for many years, particularly oak trees. If you do a Google image search for a southern home, there will almost certainly be a large house flanked by even larger oak trees dripping with Spanish moss and the few few results of your Google search. Oak trees are especially good options for shade trees because they have large canopies that block a lot of light in the summer, but because they are deciduous, they lose their leaves in the winter, allowing some sun to hit the house and warm it up. Large wraparound porches were similarly emblematic of the Old South because they kept the sun from hitting windows directly, also keeping the house cooler. While it's not common here in the southern U.S. yet, artificial sage structures like the Jollies of India are starting to become more popular around the world in hot, humid climates. I found several examples of fly roofs, which are kind of like hovering second roofs in Australia and artificial tree shade cloths being used in Japan. You are also likely to see southern homes with lighter color roofs than their northern counterparts, especially older southern homes. Since darker colors absorb more wavelengths of light than light colors, the light energy can be converted into heat energy. The darker the roof, the more heat energy will be absorbed. Where it gets very cold, it makes sense to make roofs dark so that they will absorb as much heat energy as possible, especially in the winter. But here in the South, a black roof is likely to catch the attic on fire. Okay, maybe not quite that bad, but it's pretty hot. Southern homes tend to have lighter roofs to reduce heat absorption. However, I think you do see a wider array of colors now than in the old pictures of the region, because we have air conditioning. Insulation is also really important in hot climates to keep the heat out of the house. I know when I think of home insulation, I normally think of keeping the heat in the house and the cold out of the house in the wintertime. It just isn't well associated with summer use. I think it's because a lot of southern homes have been pretty poorly insulated. Fortunately, more recently, we have figured out that stopping heat transfer can work in both directions. It can stop heat from escaping the house in the winter, but it can also keep heat from infiltrating into the house in the summer. Now the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency recommends insulation with pretty high R values, meaning heat transfer stopping power, even here in the South. Air circulation is also extremely important in maximizing heat loss. Where I live, for the most part, we sweat and nothing happens. It does not evaporate, and we do not reap the benefits of evaporative cooling. Fans change that though. They allow evaporative cooling to take place even when it's really humid, and are a staple in Southern US homes despite how unattractive they tend to be. It is not unusual for nearly every room in a Southern home to have a fan. It's even common to see them in outdoor spaces like porches and patios, and as we learned in episode 12, The War on Bugs, they have the added benefit of keeping mosquitoes at bay. While they are not as common as single room fans, whole house fans are also a great way to improve air circulation in the whole house. Whole house fans are usually in a home's attic. They pull air from the house into the house's attic, creating a pressure differential between the air in the home and the air outside the home. Where the pressure is low in the home, the fan draws air into the home through open windows, and the high pressure in the attic forces the air outside through attic venting. This produces a current of air through the home, like a wind catcher. So far, all of these cooling methods that are beneficial in hot humid climates would be beneficial pretty much anywhere. It gets pretty hot. But there's at least one big difference between cooling homes in humid and arid climates. In arid climates, the difference in temperature between night and day can be really high. The desert that is boiling in the daytime can get really cold at night. That is not really the case in tropical or semi-tropical climates. If it's hot during the day, it's still going to be pretty hot at night. Because of that, buildings with high thermal mass are not a good idea in these climates. Buildings that are made out of large bricks or stones or rammed earth have high thermal mass. They heat up slowly and lose heat slowly. That's great in a place like a desert because they only slowly warm up during the heat of the day and slowly cool off during night when it's colder. However, when it is hot all the time, they just stay hot. The slightly cooler overnight temperatures are not enough to cool them down, so they just retain the heat that they stored throughout the day. In places like these, it's better to use building materials like wood that retain very little heat and can cool off rapidly, even if that means they also heat up rapidly. That's especially true in parts of the home that are exposed to direct sunlight. When materials with high thermal mass are used in these climates, They should generally be restricted to use in things like the building's foundation, where there's no direct sun exposure. If you live in a hot, humid climate in a home that was built after the invention of modern air conditioning, you are probably thinking the same things that I am. My house has almost none of these features. How am I supposed to stay cool without power? In the short term, the answer is that we're probably going to sweat. But over time, we can replace parts of our homes with pieces that incorporate passive cooling techniques like light-colored roofs with large overhangs and windows with UV film. And we can take a small step today by planting an oak tree. I've been waiting to record this episode for about a week now. Um, Funnily, as I was thinking about the possibility of a hurricane hitting and why I would want to cool my home naturally, a hurricane hit my home. Uh, Hurricane Michael hit my region and I have been waiting to record this until I got my energy back. I was fortunate enough to be, you know, very lucky. While my neighborhood had a lot of downed trees and, you know, some people did lose some property. Um, Nobody around here was seriously hurt or injured and, you know, everything can be repaired. But some parts of the state did receive some, you know, really devastating damage. So I would really encourage anybody who is interested in helping out, um, you know, please try to do so. And if you're at all inclined, I, I really um, encourage you to reach out to them. I'd also like to thank everybody for listening today. I know a lot of people were understandably concerned that I was pod fading. Uh, I'd like to ensure you that I'm not. And I hope to be back to a normal schedule pretty soon. If you want to find out why I took this unplanned break, you can read about it on my blog, dorkingcrafts.com. Until next time, if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can leave a comment on hangyourhatpodcast.com or you can email me at hangyourhatpodcast at gmail.com. Hang Your Hat Podcast is a member of Patreon. If you would like to help support the show, please consider becoming a patron by going to patreon.com slash hangyourhat patrons will be able to read a transcript of this podcast on my patreon feed if you're not up to becoming a patron but would still like to support the show please leave a review on itunes or wherever you get your podcasts or just let a friend know about the show and as always thanks for listening